Wave pool technology is progressing at a rapid rate, and commercially surfable wave pools are opening around the world. Welcome to the Wave Pool Mag podcast. My name is Nick Robinson, and through my guests, we take a detailed look at this fascinating new game. Check us out on wavepoolmag.com. For your curiosity and stuff. We've been hearing bits and pieces about Andy Haddon and his Scottish project right in the just west of Edinburgh, a little place called Ratho, which is right next to one of the most incredible indoor climbing facilities in the whole of Europe. I was checking it out this morning just um, in preparation for this podcast, and uh, it's a phenomenal place. And there, as, as you'll see in the interview, Andy mentions that it has 240,000 visitors per year. So that's... Um, Almost like it's way more than Snowdonia's visitors, which are currently at about 150,000, last time we heard. So it's an exciting prospect that it really is, and it's going to change the face of the leisure industry in Scotland. And with there being about a million people based in Glasgow and Edinburgh, um, that's definitely going to service a lot of people and can make it attractive to a lot of people to just go surfing in Scotland's chilly climate. Without further ado, let's hear more about how Andy started this and what what, what keeps him going? Because it's a massive project, as anyone knows out there who's trying to build a wave pool. So here's Andy Haddon. Andy, welcome to the Wave Pool Mag podcast. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Absolute pleasure. So how's it going up in, you're in Edinburgh right now, are you? Actually in Glasgow at the moment. Um, the, the two big cities in Scotland, Glasgow and Edinburgh, are quite close together. So I'm, I'm across on the west coast in Glasgow at the moment, but the site is, is on the west side of Edinburgh. So about 45 minutes east of here. And obviously it's sort of middle of winter. Is it carpeted in snow right now? Uh, uh, you know what? We we don't get too much snow in Scotland. It's certainly chilly. It's about you know four or five degrees outside. But our our climate is relatively mild. Um, it doesn't differentiate too much. But no, it's uh, certainly not tropical. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I once had the the luck of being able to travel from Glasgow up to Inverness by by rail, and it was beautiful. You know, stunning snow and everything. As you're going over Pilachi. Yeah, we got a lot of stunning scenery as soon as you go north. It's a yeah. very beautiful country. But if we can just go a little bit further back in your life. Um, so back in your youth, Andy, how did your, your sporting influence begin? I actually come from a, a very uh, sporting family. Um, my, my father was involved in professional sport at, at the highest level. He was a, a rugby union coach. Um, my my whole family's always played sport. I, I played uh, a sport um, to a sort of age group level at, at rugby growing up, but multiple sports, you know, whether it was tennis, whether it was golf, whether it was football, you know, soccer. Um, really, we just always understood what sport could bring. And, and in fact, growing up sort of around the dinner table, the conversations were never so much orientated around uh, business in our household. It was always a, a slight frustration at the lack of facilities and the lack of opportunity that, that Scottish people could get uh, in terms of getting into sport because because we could see directly the wonderful things that come of it if you do play and you do get involved and you do get outside and active. And, and that was always something that drove me during my, my early years. Mm -hmm. And so how did, how did that morph into surfing? Because like you just said, I mean, it must be quite challenging to surf up in Scotland because it's so freezing cold half the time. Well, you know what? Uh, funnily enough, I thought that uh, um, about 20 years ago or, or so as well. And, and my first introduction was actually as, as a six-year-old. My, my father, who was a school teacher at the time, did an exchange program to the Gold Coast in Australia. 
Um, and I joined, you know, as a as a, as a six-year-old, the little nippers programs down the beach. And, and apparently I had a complete obsession with the waves. I was always asking how big the waves were and everything else. And, and we, I remember stopping off in Hawaii on the way home from this exchange program and seeing a guy break his board on the, on the North Shore and just thought this was the coolest thing ever, you know. And, and, this, <laughs> and this, like, lived with me. It must have lived dormant inside of me for about 15 years where surfing really wasn't part of my life at all like I say it was general sport and then I went back to work in, in Australia play a little bit of rugby after school um, and bought a boogie board you know didn't want to buy a surfboard because I, I realized how hard a, a sport it was and I thought you know boogie board at least I could get the thrill of riding some waves and, and then when I came back to Scotland um, again I, I thought well that, that was really fun for a year and I, I enjoyed surfing these breaks but it was only when I played rugby with a New Zealander and he, he had some friends over in Scotland and he said, uh, my pals are surfing down the coast here. I said, what, what do you mean down the coast? It must be freezing. <laughs> he said, oh, no, they're there. And of course, I just figured out, well, maybe if I buy a wetsuit and go and give this a go. So about 15, oh, well, however long ago it was now, maybe 15 or so years ago, I just started surfing on my own down the, the coast in Scotland. And what a, what a wonderful setup we've got down there. Great, great wee surf community. Brilliant, because I guess obviously wetsuit technology has come along so much that it's quite it's quite manageable. Completely manageable. Uh, I, I took my brother out between Christmas and New Year uh, surfing last year, uh, and said to him, "Right, Scott, um, I know you may, you maybe been a doubter in the past, but you're going to come out with me, and I'm not going to let you take your your hood off." And he said, oh, "What are you on about?" Of course, it's cold in the car park, and I put him in a. Uh, I think it was a rip curl flash bomb with the boots and the gloves and so on. And of course, because he's not a surfer, his, his movement was very inefficient. And within 20 minutes, he was going, I'm boiling hot. And can I take my hood off? I said, no. <laughs> and of course, there's people walking their dogs, looking out to sea, going, who are these crazy guys? And I'm looking at them going, who are these crazy guys walking their dogs? It's freezing today. So no, wetsuit technology has, has changed the game big time. Absolutely. Yeah, it's crazy. But you hinted basically at your university career. So I was just looking at your academic career on LinkedIn, and it seems like it's designed specifically for wave pool development. What is it, a degree in sports science and a master's in property development? Is that right? Yeah, in, in hindsight, um, it, it was. You know, looking back now, obviously, there was there's no real plan at that time. But this project, you know, it's, it's taken a great deal of, I suppose, uh, I need to be passionate about it. Um, there's a lot of people skills involved, which which has a psychology element, um, the physiology and the sporting elements very dear to me as well. And then, and then, frankly, this is a property development. So, so in hindsight, yeah, you're right that maybe I was um, quite well geared up for doing this project. Mm, absolutely. And did you go after university? Did you go directly to to work with Colliers? I did, yeah, I did. I went, I went directly to work with them, and uh, in the financial recession, had to move down to Birmingham, which was a wonderful place, uh, but it was landlocked, and uh, so I was having to make regular sort of journeys to Newquay and Rest Bay and Wales and places like that in my car, staying over my car, and just just going, oh, this is this is quite a good lifestyle. But I was actually I was working in insolvency at the time, so assisting businesses out of recession, out of, out of uh, liquidation, out of administration. Okay, and, and was is Collier's, because I interviewed Sean Young from Wave Garden a while back, and um, and he also obviously used to work at Collier's. Did you did you know him then? Sean, Sean's a bit of a legend to me, actually, Nick, because uh, he was the guy that first introduced this as a, as a viable concept. And the reason being, I, 
I was sat in my Birmingham office when we got an internal memo from Sean um, saying, as a destination consultant, he was doing the feasibility, I think, for Sir Snowdonia at the time. And, of course, I just picked up the phone to them, sort of a bit green by New Year's, and said, are, are you mad? You know, is this, are these things really viable? This seems like it's a thousand, a thousand years in the future. And having a guy like him say, Andy, you know, this is potentially a very credible business model and something that can change the game in the leisure and tourism sector in the UK if, if done correctly. You know, having a guy like that say that, I thought, you know, I'm going to invest a little bit of my own time and energy in, into this. And really, the, it all led from there. Mm -hmm. so, so that was the spark that ignited your desire to build a wave pool in Edinburgh, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there, that was the sort of spark of the idea. There was obviously there's been a number of things that had to had to come into play. Uh, one of the first things I did was go out to the test facility. It's, it's quite difficult to get there now, and um, because of their the demand. But back then, you know, the, they they allowed me to go, I, I suppose, and and for, I've, I've formed a very good long term relationship with the guys out there, um, in particular Fernando. You know, that guy really is a, is a machine. He's been fantastic over the years to, to me and to our project. And I know that's the, that's echoed around the, the different projects. So I went out there and, and thought, well, you know what? I'm a property surveyor, but I'm having the best time in my life surfing this pool. And, and it feels a bit like the ocean to me, which is not what I'd ever seen before. So if I enjoyed it, then the people of Edinburgh, I, I thought, would enjoy it too. Yeah. So what, was that about 2013, around that time? Around about that time, I would say. Around about that time, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, if we look back into the beginnings of, of your project up in Scotland, what, um, how, how did it start from, from that time that you were in Wave Garden and how are you proceeding with it? Could you step us through all the, all the phases? Well, the, the, the first thing I, I, I looked into, uh, and bear in mind my job at the time, was, was helping businesses you know, out of a sticky patch. So I was kind of learning very much a how not to, to run a business. And so I was very cautious, I remain actually very cautious and cynical to, the, to this day about everything on this project. And one of the, I knew I was going to need objective evidence. Um, and one of the first steps was feasibility. So we, we did some feasibility studies. I didn't have a lot of money at the time, but, but fortunately, uh, guys did some work. They bought into the vision that they would, they would accept a bit of smoked salmon and cider as an initial down payment, you know, uh, <laughs> at the time. And, and of course, the, uh, these guys have all, all been an integral part of the project ever since. But, you know, I needed a bit of a helping hand at the start. But I figured out from a site in the East Coast that it wasn't going to be near enough chimney pots. I, I needed a surf Snowdonia to open, you know. Uh, I needed a, an inland to open um, uh, to, to, to show some of this evidence. So we did feasibility studies, came to the conclusion that the site out in the east just wasn't going to be the right one for us, which after six months felt like a kick in the teeth to me because six months was seemed like a long time to me at that stage. Uh, but during my travels... So, sorry, can I just stop you there about yeah, the land? Did you, go and, did you go and check out a bunch of land, pieces of land, and then settle on two? Did you say one, one in the well, east and one from no, the No, I just always had this one. and then But during my travels, I'd uh, come across this other piece of land, um, and I decided if I was going to make a real fist of this, it had to be in the perfect spot. So I spoke to the, the landowners there, and it just so happened I used to play rugby with one of the guys um, there, Scott Brewster, who's now my business partner. He, he shared the same vision of, with me. Without that, it would be completely invaluable. You know, I didn't come from, come, come from land myself. Um, and really, we, we took it from there. 
That sounds amazing. Sounds like you lucked on some really great piece of land. Yeah, because I had a look. Right. You're talking about the land in Ratho, which you, you're currently right, yeah. operating. Right? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, that's perfectly situated, isn't it, between the highways and the airport? I think not just the transport links. I had to take a, a number of boxes for us. Not just the transport links, not just the fact it's a it's a beautiful old quarry, which is a natural amphitheatre in edge of Edinburgh, which is, you know, feels like you're escaping from the city, but, but actually you're only 10 miles from the city centre. The main thing for me, though, was we share an entrance with Europe's largest indoor climbing arena. So we've already got 240,000 visitors coming through our door. Um, and there's 90,000 of those are, are soft play, you know, families with kids. So we're already in that sense, just a phase two, a de-risked phase two of what's an existing uh, leisure destination. Uh, and that maybe was the, the, the secret ingredient, I suppose, to really, really go for this. Well, because that's massive. I was having a look at that a little bit earlier. It looks an incredible installation. I mean, how high is that place inside? It must be about five, six stories. Yeah, it's a fantastic facility. I mean, it was only a couple of months ago I was watching Adam Ondra climb in there. He's he's the the chap that Alex Honnold recently cited as being, you know, one of the best climbers in the world. So the best climbers in the world come to this facility. Uh, it's right on the outskirts of Edinburgh, and and we share an entrance, and it, it certainly helps to uh, to build the business case for us. Yes. And are there a lot of climbers that surf? Is there a link at all? Yeah, it's, a, it's an obvious cross-pollination. And actually, whilst I've not been to a surf park summit, I read the transcripts every year and I, and I saw that there was an actual uh, uh, lecture on how climbing could maybe cross-pollinate with surfing. And I was just thinking in the back of my mind, geez, you know, wow, we, the, the market is coming towards us here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. um, but also back to your land, wasn't there an issue with the composition of the soil in the mine? I think I read that somewhere online. Yeah, with, with all land acquisition, and, and, and bear in mind, we, we do own the land. That was another huge component for, for me is, is not running off a leasing model, which is definitely a viable model. But for us and, and for me coming from property, it was important I own the land. With all land, there's going to be issues. There was our, our, our issues not with the um, state of the soil. It's just in terms of its reclaimed land. So it's an old quarry. So uh, we've just got to be careful of settlement which has meant that our civil construction side has been a challenge, just like it has been with the other projects. But it's, it's something that is just you know, part of the project, I suppose. Does that, does that add a massive cost? I mean, you have to you know, drive big pile driving down and to try and make foundations for the, for the reef. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does, it does add cost. But with everything on this project, I worst cased everything. So my, actually, what's, what's in the cost plan is a, a 400 mil concrete slab right across the board with 12 meter long piles that land on hard rock every five meters so basically what's in the cost plan is you know the Taj Mahal upside down in our in our lagoon what's actually going to happen is a much smarter geotechnical solution that will be less than than what I've gone and raised raised the money on Ah, excellent. That's great. But obviously, you must have visualized your perfect outcome for the project. So take me as a first-time customer through the gates of Edinburgh's first surf park, as it is in, in your mind's eye. I mean, I just think this, this place is going to, to blow, the, blow the minds of the people in Edinburgh and the people of Scotland and the international visitors touring. And I can say that with a little bit of objectivity, because... You know, having taken the Scottish surf team and various people out to the test facility over the years, and and I believe you've been as well. Like, have you have you been to the test facility in the back? I have. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I went to surf there um, early this year, and it, it was it's it was, it was it's, a, it's a kind of 
well, I, it's a surreal, almost dreamlike experience being there and watching these waves run through and, and seeing the reactions, you know, of of different people, not myself. You know, I always had to be cautious of this. Is this just me being a, a surfer and, and enjoying the waves and all this this stuff? But, you know, bringing non-surfers, seeing seeing people's reactions and, and seeing I've, I've had a whole spread of demographic come across from Scotland. And and this is why I just know that when we open this thing, it's it's just going to be mind blowing for the people. Uh, I, I can't. That, that's what that's what really interests me. Um, from from my perspective, is that, you know, obviously we've seen all these wave garden videos with all the pros ripping it up and Toledo going there and you know Jordy Smith and everybody in great. But I'm also super interested in, in learn people learning and how they you know how quickly they can they can surf you know in in a in a installation like hundred percent Nick I mean there's times like I, I joke about it with, with Fernando a little bit I said I said look we, we know this is great for the the top surfers but when are you going to start sending us some videos of 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 average surfers in your lagoon and families and so on and they have over the years to be honest but um but but, but the main thing for me is just um, it's got something for everyone, from beginner surfers, expert surfers, uh, and and when people come to our food market and our spa and so on, and, and they see these waves, they're, they're undoubtedly going to want to have a shot. Well, if you want a video of an average surfer in the lagoon, you can see I'm the average surfer surfing in the lagoon, but it was great fun. Nick, like it's un it's unreal. Like we we all like to think we're we're better than we are in our heads, don't we? But I've seen video footage of myself, and yeah, it makes me cringe a little bit. But <laughs> but it's all good fun. But the Wave Garden Cove technology is, is phenomenal. I couldn't believe the footage coming out of Melbourne. Actually, I mean, there's the yeah. beast wave, as they're calling it. It looks phenomenal. Yeah, you know, it, it seems to be leveling up. I don't know what they're doing there. Were you surprised when you saw that barrel? No, no, ne never surprised. Never surprised. I just, I think that, um, as you as you know, this is a a very new uh, sector, and and in any new sector, there's often confusion in the market, and there's lots, also a, a, often a lack of of knowledge in the market, and and at certain times you have to put your faith in in certain people. And I think I saw from a very early stage that these wave garden guys, you know, whilst they hadn't solved the riddle in the early days, the the team they had together, the the way their team collaborated and communicated amongst themselves and and to to us made us very very confident that that they would uh, they would be exactly where they are today. So when I saw Melbourne, of course, there was wasn't so much relief. It was a uh, it was an excitement about what we were going to be be bringing to Scotland. Excellent. Okay. And in your what's going to be surrounding your wave park in Edinburgh? What kind of you, what kind of accommodation and clubhouse, etc.? It was important for us to have a diverse mix of accommodation. So we've got everything from um, you know, bothies for potentially traveling international surfers or, or, or tourists who are maybe even just coming to, to Edinburgh anyway and wanting to have a surf right up to, to family pod accommodation and, and higher end pod, pod accommodation right up to some some very top end luxury lodges which have, have a site over our site and then right up to the highlands of Scotland over over the river four so the key for for me was like it is in the business plan in general is is, is hedging it across multiple uh, multiple sectors um, and being diverse and flexible so we can move with the times. And are you going to int introduce mountain biking and, and hiking and other kind of outdoor activities in there? Yeah, absolutely. We've worked, we've got a, a mountain biking skills track. We've worked a wee bit with uh, Scottish Cycling on that. 
Um, and the good thing about Scotland, Nick, is, is it's a, it's a bit like the surfing community in Scotland. It's, it's kind of a small place, you know, and but it's, it's a very well well resourced, very enlightened and, and industrious place. And we, we tend to look after each other. And there's a, a lot of skill sets when you look around. So at every step, whilst I've not been an expert in that in that area, I've always been one or two degrees of separation from, from someone who does know what they're talking about. And, and that's been key. Uh, over the years to make sure that this mix that we're bringing is the right one. Sure, because I mean, there's different options all the time, aren't yeah. there? I mean, I saw a plan for, um, I'm not sure if you've seen the one in Madrid, I think it's called Soloria, which is right, um, a wave garden plug right into a shopping centre. Yeah, well, you know, it's. I suppose uh, the thing, the thing um, we can only really comment sort of on my own project, but one thing I found interesting, look at the, at the global projects, is they're, they're in different uh, demographics, they're in different economies. And certainly here in the UK, where land is a premium, you know, it's a relatively small place, land is a premium, you know, there's certain ways of, of, of raising finance, there's certain ways of doing business, um, it's, it's very much like for us, this has to be a destination that, that ticked a few boxes. It had to attract the surfers, all, all the different types of surfers. But frankly, it just has to be a place where if you're, if you're a family in Edinburgh and you're looking to do something at the weekend, that the, the four-year-old's going to be happy, the 12-year-old's going to be happy, and, and the, the, the wife and the husband are going to be happy, we tick all those boxes. We're bringing a, a spa um, so which is really quite a personal journey for me because the, the companies that we're bringing, the spa, Michelle Denham, Rogue Village, the events and food company and Freeze, the, the surf shop, are all very well known to me. And we've built relationships over the years and we, we thought, you know, we can do this locally. We can do this well. So we're very excited. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like a great mix. He really does. We hope so. So many wave park developers around the world have challenges with filling and maintaining the levels of water, especially the guys out in California in, um, what's it? What's that valley called? Coachella Valley. So how, how are you going to do it in Edinburgh? Is, is Scottish rain going to cover everything? Uh, it's no secret that, that we got uh, a fair bit of rain, <laughs> not going to lie. But um, yeah, we, we've got some pretty smart solutions. We're, we're in a natural amphitheater. Um, so we're in a bowl. So we've got a swale system that collects water that we can potentially harvest. We've got a we dug a borehole so we can get some from the springs, but predominantly our, our water is coming from the Scott Union Canal. We've got a canal that runs right beside our site that goes into the centre of Edinburgh, 10 miles away, that people can cycle down, walk down and so on. And, and the public bodies have worked with us really helpfully um, so we can extract their water, go through a filtration system, uh, and there we go. And, and our backup is the mains. Wow, that'll be brilliant to just suck it out of the canal. Is it not going to drop the levels alarmingly when you do it for the first time? Uh, well, it's a funny calculation. It, it drops it, the levels by a millimeter. Wow! Which is kind of cool because, like, this canal goes from Edinburgh to Falkirk, and to think that our lagoon drops the levels by anything is 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 cool. But we have to do it over certain times and discharge flows and so on. That's all all very much tied up in regulation. But yeah, it does drop the level by by a millimeter. Sean, obviously, you're not that worried about um, evaporation at all. Well, we are actually, I had Andy Ainscoe, he's, he's uh, becoming quite a, a good pal of mine, actually. He was up in Scotland again last week. We uh, went for dinner together and so on. And, and I think I heard on one of your podcasts as well, he noted the evaporation was was a surprise for him. So, you know, there, there's, we've got, we've got our own calculations for that with the wetsuit evaporation, with just the general air, with the splashing and so on. But... Yeah, we, we think we've accounted for it. Yeah, Andy mentioned um, as people getting in and out of the water as well, that was quite a factor, which which I found quite interesting as well. 
especially when you're in a five mil, like can you imagine there's a lot of water coming in and out with uh, yeah with everything like all the good a liter yeah, a liter at least or something, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so challenges. I mean, a lot of people ask questions, being like, "Wow, these massive wave parks must pull a lot of energy, and how sustainable is it?" And have you ever had those kind of questions? Yeah, of course. Well, it's in the, it's in the forefront of our mind. Actually, um, I run another business. I set up another business, which is co-working, sort of uh, out in North Berwick, the town that I live. It's another sort of community-based business, and and we're plastic-free, which means we don't use single-use plastics, and we're constantly doing things like beach cleans and trying to uh, become greater in the sum of our parts in terms of protecting the environment. And, and with that ethos, we're, we're doing the same at the WaveGuard. We've had umpteen sustainability studies and so on and so forth. We can't avoid the, 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 the reality, which is we are a user of power. And I think that's that's careful to remember, is that we are a user of power. You know, we've got three megawatt substation coming in here. However, the net gain across the environment, you know, the carbon sequestration that we're putting into our plans, the social capital that we're, we're gleaning, let alone the economic net benefit, means that that it's it's an absolute no-brainer. This facility overall will do a heck of a lot of good for not only the people of Scotland, but uh, for the biodiversity and the environment over the long term. But if, for example, some other technology came along, like American wave machines or Surflock or Weber wave pools or somebody, and they came to you right now and they said, ah, oh, we can actually do this a lot better and a lot more efficiently than WaveGarden. Would you entertain a new technology or are you stuck on WaveGarden? No chance, no chance. I, I, I'm definitely not stuck on WaveGarden. You know, I, I think one thing that became clear in the early years, again, touching back on them, was is that um, because I didn't have uh, money to throw at this or land to throw at this, I knew my whole business plan was going to revolve around objective evidence. And I think sometimes in the sector, there's a, a real concentration on you know, can the barrel be slightly more almond shaped? Can the wave be slightly larger? Whereas my mindset was always what works for us is is as many waves as possible. And we'll be dialing down the wave garden cove, you know, as big waves as possible. And, and that beast you referred to, you know, whilst we'll definitely be enjoying that from time to time. And I'd be crucified by the Scottish surfers if, if we didn't run it. You know, it's, it's not going to be run that often given the demographics that we're using. So we're at the end game in, in, in that sense. And then beyond that, it's water filtration. It's the covenant strength of the company you're using when you have to go out to these institutions and so on. So whilst I, I enjoy seeing the sector move um, and I have no doubt that there will be successes for these companies in, in, in other areas of the world for us, no, I've always been loyal to WaveGuard and they've always been loyal to us based out of objectivity and, and no, nothing nothing could change my mind. Sure, I mean, I'd love WaveGuard as well. I think they're a fantastic company and we obviously, as I mentioned earlier, I had the opportunity to go and visit them. Um, but there's so much competition hotting up around it and obviously no one has um, have proven anything yet. But um, it must be yeah, difficult sure. for WaveGuard to, to keep abreast because there's lots of people popping up all over the place, you know, suggesting better options. Uh, uh, I think that, that, yeah, I mean, like, obviously, it's, it's, I can't speak for WaveGarden, and I can only speak from a sort of developer standpoint, but the way I've always viewed it, Nick, is that um, these, these projects are done on such scale, and they're so expensive, you know, they're so, there's so much capital that has to go into these, and, it, and you can have all the money and the land in the world, which is, it, which is rare for anyone to have, then you have to go through an 18-month to two-year planning process, which no one can avoid, um, and then, and then you have to have the 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 confidence to back a supplier 
and, and you have to convince your backers to back that supplier. And then you have to build an operational team. And then you open something that no one's opened before. These things take a heck of a lot of time. So what my view is always this market's only going to be open in the Western world for, for a finite amount of time. And there's only going to be so many of them, certainly in the UK. So if I could get comfortable with a certain technology, with a certain business plan and a certain land, then we, we know that we were going to be the only one in, in Scotland. And if, and if a, a Surflakes or someone else was to, to look at Glasgow or somewhere else, they would need a developer to do that. And that developer, would, we, we would be able to potentially defend against that for a number of years in, in the lead-in, but that developer would be cannibalizing their own business plan from, from the start. So I think that in, in, it's a question for around the world. I think there is a lot of opportunity for these different technologies, but in the Scotland and particularly in the UK, the market may not seem like it, but is almost closed for business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I suppose like there's Birmingham and there's Bristol and there's London. Yeah, um, right. Are there any other? What about something in the Northeast or the, the middle, middle East? Is there nothing there? In the Northeast? Well, in the Midlands of the UK. Where, what's, um... Yeah, Midlands. There's a guy, really uh, credible guy, uh, Stephen Price, who's doing the Midlands project. He, he, uh, I'm sure you could have an interesting chat with him, Nick. I've not met him myself, but um, I think he was at HSBC and he's seen the same thing that, that a few of us have seen and he's toiling away and, and I think he's got some land secure and so on. So, uh, yeah, the, the Midlands on exclusivity is taken out. Most of London is, Scotland certainly is, and, yeah, the UK is... In terms of WaveGuard, almost close for business, but of course, you know, if in terms of the the other companies, there there will remain opportunity. How about um, have you heard any rumours about Ireland at all? Anything opening there? No, no rumours, no rumours. But well, I mean, I say no rumours. You know what this market is like. Yeah. Every two weeks, there's a rumour, but. Uh, no, I mean, our, we would love our Celtic cousins to get get up and, and do something like that. I sometimes give Sean a little bit of jip on that. Come on, man. Because <laughs> he's Irish. Have you heard anything, Nick? I haven't, actually, no. I haven't no. at all. No, it's been all yeah. quiet in Dublin. All right, okay. Okay, well, there we go. I'm sure there's maybe, somebody listening. Maybe we thinking, should make an oh, approach. I'm digs. Yeah, we should. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as far as competitions go, I was a bit disappointed with the Freshwater Pro at Kelly Slater's Surf Ranch in Lemoore, and I think a lot of other people online were. Do you reckon there's a sweet spot for wave pool competitions? And, and have you guys looked at this yet? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I'm just like just like you, just like any observer. I'm watching these things. You know, I, I really enjoyed watching the first one, the second one. Yeah, it, you know, I, I still enjoyed it. But I think in terms of our facility, we we know for sure that we're going to host uh, competitions at you know a local level, a national level. You know, just because of the logistics and and, and the fact we've got these great waves on tap. Aspirationally, of course, we would love to, to think that the Cove has the capability to produce a variety of wave types that can make a competition format exciting. But having stayed up late last night watching the Pipe Masters, yeah. you know, we're, ne we're, we're never we're never going to have eight foot eight foot slabby barrels, you know. But is is there a place for it on the world tour in in, in an inland stop of the eleven stops? To my mind, absolutely, because variety, just like trestles, just like JB, just like Cloudbridge, different people like different things. So it'll never, to my mind, take over <laughs> the WCT. I don't think surfers have to worry about that. 
But as a little something different every year to watch the pros challenge themselves, then yeah, let's let's see where it goes. And who knows, there might be just a wave pool circuit around the world so they can go and surf in Brazil and surf in America. And wave well, pools. maybe. I mean, there's a school of thought that say that wave pool surfer might develop into a completely different beast, maybe even physiologically than, than the, the ocean surfer, you know, with strong legs and less upper body paddle strength and so on. But I'm just like everyone else. I'm just excited to see where it leads. If, as long as we're responsible in, in the way we we uh, educate the surfers in our in our pool you know this is not the ocean then you know let's grow this sport and see where it goes absolutely so what about marketing um the wave pool are you have you, have you assembled a, a team of ambassadors or something like that or what's your approach towards the marketing my, my approach over the last few years has been very much to stay out of that side as much as possible because it's so difficult to get a project like this up and running there's i've done 14 legal agreements in the past 12 months and as much as like when i met i met otello ferreira last time i was at the surf facility and the time before jack robinson you know as much as you know i was getting a huge thrill and every bit of me wanted to go yeah can you do a quote for a project or could you do this for that there's a time and a place and, you know, we're still 18 months uh, prior to opening and we have a, what we think is a really good marketing strategy, a, a really robust one. And that stuff will all come in due course. But we, there's only so, so much energy we can spend on certain aspects. And, and for me, the marketing happens when you start to entertain the public. Uh, I think Andrew Ross has captured that quite well in Australia, uh, to be honest. But yeah, you'll be hearing more from us. But but no, we don't have these guys in place at the moment. Sure. No, I think Andrew Ross has done a fantastic job down there and still doing Brilliant it. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Really good guy. He, he's a guy I had stay at my house uh, a couple of years ago. And and uh, I think it was just at the time he was finalizing his uh, his investment raise. And I was just like, oh, man, I've got this all to come. And what a great job he's done. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we're, we're through that too. Yeah. Okay. And um, so just a little bit about the future of surfing. Obviously, um, we reckon there are about 20 million surfers in the world. I don't know if you agree with that. Do you? Um, depends what, I mean, how do you measure that? Yeah, well, that's the problem with all statistics, isn't it? So I think the International Surfing Association said there were between 17 and 35 million surfers. So I just thought 20 million, let's call it 20 million. Um, uh, the way to, to, uh, the way I measure it is uh, like there's a school thought that says there's about half a million uh, surfers in the UK, and that often people like bulge their eyes and go, "Really?" And you know maybe that's someone that when they go on holiday they they have a surf and so on. But actually, if you walk down George Street, which is our main shopping street in Edinburgh, you you can't go three or four stores without a surfer in the window. Mm -hmm. You know you can't. It's a it's a hugely aspirational uh lifestyle sport which has a very powerful marketing connotation and when you go into a company of 20 to 30 people and you ask around two or three of them are surfers mm -hmm. and a bit like the guy who wrote barbarian days you know it's almost like something you don't talk about you know because it's a bit like embarrassing and you maybe know you're rubbish and you you don't want to admit it but it's such a fun sport and it does so much that even in Scotland, you know, you can't walk into a company and there's not a guy or a girl who who, who surfs in their spare time now. That was a fantastic book by the Barbarian Days, huh? William Finnegan. Yeah, it's a cracker. Yeah, I, I, I actually made, uh, the, the, we, we sit on a board of the company and I said to the board, right, all right, one of the catches, unfortunately, you've got to read this because this will bring you up to speed a little bit of what, what it's like to be a surfer. <laughs> I think obviously it's changing now. I think it's becoming a lot more professional, a lot more acceptable. Um, in, in the old days, in the 60s and the 70s, it was kind of like a, a dodgy thing to be. 
Yeah, I think so. I, th I think it's a, you know, I think everyone accepts whatever part of surfing you're in now that we are going through this inflection point. And, and so the key is just the folk that are in these positions, you know, maybe for ourselves in terms of running a development for Sophie Goldschmidt uh, and the, the WSL and, and then r right down to, to the surf schools and, and, and all the, the shapers and everyone else. I think we all have a responsibility to direct where surfing goes and you can't do any more than, than what's in front of you. Would you enjoy a future where wave pools are as prevalent as football stadiums? Um, well, they'll never be as prevalent as football stadiums. I mean, we've got four football stadiums in Edinburgh and there's only going to be one wave guard in Scotland for sure. But I think that if I'm getting your point in terms of the they're everywhere, yeah, of course. I mean, like, they're never going to be the ocean. They're never going to replace the ocean. But wh why wouldn't we want to give access to, to a sport that can can be super, super inclusive? You know, we're, we're actually sponsoring a guy through the, a, a world first at university in surf therapy. He's in his third year now, Jamie Marshall. He's a little superstar. And he's just at a local university for us. And he's getting together all the objective evidence, which shows why, you know, if you get kids into this sport, especially this day and age when everyone's minds are cluttered with nonsense and social media and so on, if you can get kids into sport and youth into this sport, you know, you can, you can make a lot of positive social change. So, so why wouldn't you do that? And then why wouldn't you try and increase the high performance nature of a sport? We're all competitive beasts. And why wouldn't you want somewhere just to go that's fun with your family? So, yeah, there's, there's maybe some very, very cynical downside arguments to this, but I think we're always looking at the net opportunity. And to me, it's a slam dunk that these are going to be a net benefit to, to surfing and to society. I totally agree with you. But then there'll be these, these sort of old school surfers who are very scared about it growing up. And, you know, they think, oh, more, people, more kooks will be polluting the brakes. And, and do you reckon that's going to be, have you experienced any of that kickback at all? I mean, we've we've experienced it, but you know, it's, it's people are always going to be slightly scared of change, and that's why it's such a huge responsibility to make sure that if you are in a position where you can, you know, you, you can you can maybe uh, have some influence, then you you have to be responsible about it. I think the the first time I went up, I presented most years at the Scottish Surf Championships in Thursday in April, and the first year I went up, despite the fact I'd been surfing alone on the East Coast and thought I'd earned my stripes and all that kind of stuff for 10 years, definitely I was hit with some sort of cynicism. But through that, through that relationship building, which has been key to our project, they can see there's an authenticity and, and, and a genuineness about we are trying to do something that is good. And I think as soon as people see that that's what you're trying to do, then they will accept that there will be challenges along the way and they will generally get on board. And in our Scottish surf community, they will be quick to tell me if they don't like something and, and so they should. But no, right right now we're, we're, all, uh, we're all in the right place with it and working together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Olympics are just around the corner in 2020. What kind of real impact do you reckon that'll bring to the sport? Um, well, it's, it's definitely going to get a lot more viewers. It's, it's definitely something that is going to take it more to the, to the masses. Um, it's definitely something that if surfing is smart as a sector, it can capitalize on uh, economically, there can be, you know, as surfing grows, that means there can be more surf shapers. That means there can be more people that can work in, in something that's their passion. But saying that, we'll just have to wait and see how it goes in Tokyo. I mean, I, I don't, what time of year is it? I don't think it's the storm season in Tokyo. Or um, No, I'm not that, sure at all. I'm not sure. I think it's like it's, 
I mean, that's why I think having a backup venue that's credible, like, is 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 going to be something that will be the long stay of the Olympic inclusion. Uh, 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 but I'm I'm excited about. It. Yeah, I don't see why not. Yeah, I think it's 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 a it's a fantastic idea. But if you if you think of you know watching all the the traditional Olympics and then switching over to watching some guys, you know, obviously the world pros surfing in slop, it's not going to be so much fun. But let's hope that it'll yeah, be an amazing experience. Yeah, because obviously it's not going to be on all the time, and it'll just be slots that you'll be able to see now and then. Yeah, I mean, it, like, well, you, you've kind of nailed it there. Like the downside is purely logistics with this sport. You know, no one's questioning the, about that surfing's the you know most influential lifestyle sport in the world and the, the everywhere it goes it's people want to do it but logistically it's a nightmare you know sure. so, so yeah if you could guarantee amazing ocean waves then it would blow the minds of, of people uh, but that's maybe where a wave pool uh, of, of whatever technology has has its place in the future as a backup or potential premier venue i think that's that's definitely should be on the cards i'm surprised that it wasn't but yeah. anyway Andy, um, thank you so much for spending all this time with us, and we really are—you know—wish you all the best of luck with your um, with your wave park in Scotland. It's going to be amazing. No, thank you very much, and I think I think just being able to do something that I was also passionate about as as a kid in terms of getting people into sport and and, and creating a facility that could be inclusive—I I didn't think I'd ever be in this position to actually be delivering that. So it's it's definitely something that I'm I'm excited about. Well, congratulations! That's incredible. So there you go. In a couple of years' time, you'll be able to surf Edinburgh. Isn't that amazing? Another Wave Garden Cove project. So that makes, what, two Wave Garden Coves almost open, one in Bristol, one in Melbourne. And then there's about four projects um, coming up over the next couple of years, with one in Switzerland, one in Coachella Valley in California, and another one down in Sao Paulo in Brazil. And obviously, Seoul in Korea, is a massive wave garden cove, massive $2 billion development. And then there'll be Scotland coming up. So it's all looking pretty hot for wave garden. So keep your eye on those guys. They are right at the forefront of the wave pool space right now. So, and if you haven't heard our interview with wave pool, with, uh, with wave garden, go back and look at um, where I chat to Sean Young. We had a really interesting conversation about the start of wave garden and how he fits into it. So that's interesting stuff. So, uh, as always, you can check out our podcast notes on wavepoolmag.com and you can see a summary of all our podcasts on wavepoolmag.com forward slash podcast. All these podcasts are available on, on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Spotify, and any other podcast podcatcher that you can find around there. Wherever you listen to your podcast, we're available. So sign up, subscribe, and if you want to get in touch with us, just uh, send us a message through our contact form on the website. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next week. My name is Nick Robinson, and it's great to have you listening. Thanks a lot. Wait, For your curiosity and stuff.